Could you open up to Matthew chapter 9 as we continue in our study in the book of Matthew? It is now officially fall. And every, yeah, it's a great thing. And, but every year at this time, Christiana, I get extremely sentimental and sad. For me, it's a really sad time. There's a large hole in my heart because I miss a friend, a dear friend. I call him my autumn buddy. So I wrote a poem about him, and I'm going to share it with you this morning. It's called An Ode to My Old Flannel Shirt. It's tough. My old friend is gone. Whisked away in the dark of night, taken, torn, trash, gone forever. In your youth, you caught my eye with pattern bold, soft to the touch. You kept me safe from that autumn chill. You were comfortable, reliable, and warm. You joined me on long walks in the woods under the canopy of covered, colored leaves. You assisted me as I pulled the chain on my son's football game, as I sat and I watched in anticipation, you sat with me beside a flickering bonfire illuminated by a joyful flame. You were there with me. Over the years, of age was not kind to you. Your edges began to fray. A hole on the elbow, grease on the sleeve, but a friend you forever remain. Stains and cuts made you more beloved, my comrade for all seasons. But my dearest wife grew to hate you. <laughs> my children hid their faces when you appeared in public with me. My dog wiped his muddy paws upon your back. Then one night behind the cover of thick veiled darkness, you were no more. Not one whisper. You were just gone. I couldn't find you in the drawer, the hamper or folded with my socks and jockey shorts. You're gone forever. No soul has admitted to the crime. No back alley informer has told me who gave you up and threw you away. Were you imprisoned in the waste can or thrown on the side of the road? No one talked. No one cares. I miss you, my dear flannel friend. Gone, but never forgotten. <laughs> never forgotten. So this, this is about my lost flannel shirt. I loved it. I spent so much time wearing it. I didn't want to get rid of it, but my wife said, that, that has to go, man. That shirt has to go. I needed a change, and so this obsession with my old flannel is gone. And every man in here understands that obsession. Raise your hand, wives, if you've ever had this uh, problem with your husband, if you've ever thrown out one of his old shirts. Raise your hand. In the first service, it was 90%. Maybe you haven't lived that long to have that shirt. But after a while, they start growing in the closet. And I'll go in the closet, all of a sudden I'll be gone. Where'd they go? That's my favorite shirt. Brent, do you have a shirt like that? Kelly, does Brent have a shirt like that? Not anymore. <laughs> but I would say this. Every person also understands that same feeling when God asked you to give up that old self. Like your old flannel shirt, you didn't want to let it go, but you had to. He calls each of us to shed our sinful self and put on this new likeness, this new skin of Christ. 
God is making new people out of old cloth, and that's why the title of this message is New Skin. And it's Matthew's story, the writer of the book of Matthew. It's his story and how he met Jesus. Matthew's testimony. A testimony is the personal truth of how a person came to encounter the living God and their life is forever drastically changed. Every testimony is similar. It has three parts. Part one is your life before Jesus. We're going to learn about Matthew's life before Jesus. Part two is that encounter, that moment when Jesus grabbed you and said, I want you, follow me. And then the third part is life with Jesus. You could, some people say, well, life after Jesus. No, there is no after Jesus. It's always with Jesus. So if you can follow along, we're going to read verses 9 through 17 of chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat? tax collectors and sinners. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of untruck cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. So the title is New Skin. And we're going to take Matthew's story in three parts. Remember, we're going to talk about his life before he met Jesus, his encounter with Jesus, and then his life with Jesus. But his life before Jesus. Matthew, his name means gift of God. But that was not always his name. If you read in the book of uh, Luke and Mark, his name before meeting Jesus was Levi, son of Alphaeus, a common name. But in Matthew's account, when Matthew writes his own story, he prefers being called gift, gift of God. Most likely Jesus gave him that name. So you can say this story is about a regular rotten guy with a common Jewish name, Levi, or some, some people call him Levi, and how he became a precious gift in the eyes of God. That's the point of every testimony. Every single one, God changes from regular old flannel shirt and makes you into something brand new, a gift. 
That's my story. I grew up as regular old Chris. My name is Christopher, but it's always been shortened to Chris. I've always hated that. That's one of those names that could be like Pat or Sam. Is that a guy's name or a girl's name? My sisters called me Chrissy. I hated that even more. That's the worst. And then I'd play basketball across the street with the older guys, and they'd call me the short kid, just simply the short kid. Hey, you want the short kid on your team? Yeah, he's pretty good. And then they started calling me Flea because I was a little quick. So, I mean, I never had a good name. Nothing special about me. And some of you, I think, could feel the same way. You're just a nameless face in the crowd, a wallflower. Nobody really recognizes you. You're the NPC meme. I did that for computer geeks. You know the NPC meme? It means the non-player character. It's a very what I would say this apropos statement of just how people just all fade into the gray background of life. No one's distinct. But Jesus wanted Levi. He saw him sitting at the dreaded tax collector's booth, counting money, keeping records, plodding through the daily grind, probably with stained black fingers from the quill he was using to keep numbers, furled brow just from the monotony of all of the garbage of life. He probably, I got that fly right at you, I got it. He probably, Levi probably hated that booth. It was said it was probably posted by the Sea of Galilee, sitting in that booth, counting numbers, smell of rotten fish and animal dung everywhere. A tax collector lived a horrible no good, very bad life. You could say, oh, but they were rich. Sure, they were rich. They had a lot of power over the peasants and the fishermen. But they were detested. I mean, they were hated. The best way to put it is, if I say to you, think of the politician you can't stand the most. What comes to your mind? Don't shout it out. <laughs> Don't do that right here. There might be fisticuffs because you have both sides. But think of that politician that drives you the most crazy. That's how they thought about Matthew. He's the local IRS agent sitting in the middle of the town of Capernaum collecting taxes with a Roman soldier's sword demanding it be paid. To the Jews, Levi was a sellout. He sold his, sold his soul. To the leaders of the Jews, he sold his soul to money. That is why in verse 10, if you look, it says, Jesus reclined at the tables, he went to Matthew's house, and who was there? Tax collectors and sinners. It's always paired together, tax collectors and sinners. You can find that in verse 11. Four times you'll find that in the book of Mark and also in the book of Luke. Tax collectors and sinners. Underneath the line of sinners, you can include thieves, prostitutes, drunkards, and thugs. In the NLT, in verse 11, it says they're scum. So, Matthew was part of the dishonorable, miserable, wretched group of people. The society of people that's cast away. I don't want them around. They were probably the Galilean mafioso. You know, they said, you come, and if you don't pay up, you know, I'm going to break your fingers. That kind of a crowd. And yet, unbelievably, in verse 9, in verse 9, it says that Jesus wanted him. You've got to be kidding me, Jesus. You want this guy? I know a lot of tax collectors and sinners types. I ran with a group just like them for about four years. They lived for the moment. They celebrated their debauched lifestyle. 
while using people for their pleasure. Philippians talks about them. Best description ever of this group. Philippians 3.19. Their destiny is destruction. Means they're on a road to hell. Their God is their stomach. That means they just are after their appetite. And their glory is in their shame. Look at me, man! But here's the surprising thing about this group of people. If you ever get to know them, when the corner bar is finally closed, it's three in the morning and they can no longer get another beer. And when the buzz finally wears off, they are the loneliest people you will ever meet. They know emptiness. They marinate in it every Monday morning after the weekend's done and the parties are over. And if you really get to know them, they are no stranger to shame. That was Levi until Jesus showed up at his booth. Did you know, so it says tax collectors and sinners, did you know we're all sinners? All of us are? And the term sinner is not intended to be a good thing. Our culture thinks it is. We've kind of turned it up on its head to think it's something we need to be proud of. God loves me just as I am. Some people say, hey, don't judge me. We all sin. We're all sinners, as if they're proud of it. Some other people say sinners are just everyday individuals who finally have enough courage to express their true self. It's just me being me. But I want you to see what Jesus says about sinners in verse 12. Look at verse 12. But when he heard it, tax collectors and sinners, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, in other words, the doctor goes to the sick people. Jesus saying, I'm the doctor, and I'm here for the sick. So in other words, he's calling sinners sick. You can say it like this. Sinners are not called because they're sinners or because they're cool. Or they're courageous being themselves, living their lifestyle. No, they're called sinners because they're sick. Jesus doesn't like me because I'm a sinner. He likes me because he made me in his image. And he, like a good doctor, wants to heal me from the sin that's corroding my soul. There is this mistaken idea that the way I am, sin and all, is because God made me this way. That's not true. He made me to reflect his son with nobility, with honor, and with glory. That's what he made me to be. And like a nasty virus, sin is like that oil spot on my favorite flannel shirt. It stains my soul. We are not to be proud of the dirt on the old flannel shirt. That grease stain and hole in the elbow is not something to be comfortable with. It's flawed. Jesus calls it sick. So, Instead of taking glory in our shame, what should we do? He wants to give us each a new life, a new shirt. I can tell us what we should stop doing. We need to stop being proud of how many beers we can drink and pound down. We need to stop how many times being, being impressed with how many times I can use the F word as an adjective, noun, and verb. 
We need to uh, stop being proud of how many women we can pick up at a bar. We need to be done with seeing how many likes we can find on our semi-nude Instagram photos. And we need to stop expecting other people celebrating my attraction to the same sex. It's not something to be proud of. We should never be proud of how we cheat the system and make more money than we ever had before. You see how I put that on Marketplace? I've really got money for that. Yeah, but it was a lemon. I don't care. I made a lot of money. Taking pride in your sin is a clear sign you're sick. And the sickness has condemned you, sending you down the river sticks to hell. That's why Jesus came to earth. He wants to heal you, which is part two when we encounter Jesus. So here we have the story of Levi, Matthew. And uh, the story of Levi is rather quick, rather abrupt. He doesn't give much detail. He doesn't even tell us what led up to that moment, necessarily. Many people will remember, if you've seen the movie Chosen, they show Matthew working through things before Jesus came. Here it doesn't say that. All it says in verse 9 is Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man. He saw someone. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose up and he followed him. It seems like a lot's left out. How much did Matthew know about Jesus before he came? How difficult was the decision to get up? Was it immediate? Was Matthew struck by Jesus' power like a lightning bolt out of the sky? Or was his decision a result of years and years of struggle, pain, and loneliness at the booth? And Jesus knew now is the time. We don't know. But one thing is for sure about every disciple in the Gospels. When Jesus calls a person, it is compelling. You have to go. Are you compelled by him? Are you compelled by him? Like you have to follow him? Or is he just a curiosity? Yeah, he's interesting. If he's just interesting, I'm not sure he's called you. Or at least you haven't heard it yet. For centuries, I would say this discussion of the call has been disputed by different theological sides. Calvinists call this irresistible grace. That when God calls, his power overcomes any resistance to the sinner on the sinner's part. In other words, they would say Matthew had no other choice. When Jesus called, he had to go. In the same way, when Jesus gives sight to the blind, he speaks a word, the blind is healed, having not much choice in the matter. On the other side, we call it the Arminian side, Arminian theology teaches a subject called prevenient grace, saying that God will never override our choice, but rather, when he calls, he opens our eyes to see who Jesus clearly is so we can make a choice on our own terms or we can worship him. So is it about God's power or our choice. And what happened here in Matthew? I don't know. There's a mystery to it. And there's a mystery because there's never any details in the heart. They just go and follow. But I would say there is one more idea. Some Bible scholars call this the mystery of compelled intrare. I thought it was French. Fabian told me, nope, that's Latin. So it's Latin. 
But here's where it comes from. Go to the book of Luke 14, 15 to 24. This is a fascinating story. And this is really what happened in my heart. I have a sneaky suspicion this is what happened in Matthew's heart. Luke 14, 15 to 24. So Jesus is reclined at a table. He's eating dinner at, a, uh, at somebody's house. And he begins in verse 15 of Luke 14. When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So he's, you know, being nice with Jesus, talking about, kind of blessing Jesus, like, it's going to be great. I can't wait to go to the kingdom of God. And everybody's going to have a blast. Jesus said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at that time, for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. So the banquet spread. All of the fixings are on the table. And he says, Now we're ready, servants. Go and invite everybody. And invite the people that I want to come. Mainly, he's kind of talking about the Jews here. Verse 14. Or 18, I'm sorry. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. And I go to examine him. Please have me excused. And another said, hey, I married a wife. And therefore, I cannot come. So the people who are invited said, I'm too busy, basically. I don't have time for this party or whatnot. So verse 21, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry, and he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in, and listen to who he's bringing in, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is more room. There's more room. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come. And that's where this idea of compel intrare comes in. Compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. So here's what's happening. God goes into the highways and byways, and he goes after the people who want to come, and they're all desperate. Poor, crippled, blind, lame. And they aren't too busy, but those who he wanted to invite were too busy to come. They didn't want to come. So I'd say compel intrare is less about God forcing people to believe as it is God is looking for those who are desperate for him. That's what happened to me. From my own experience, I found that Those who are genuinely compelled to come to Christ do so because in their soul there's a turmoil. In my soul, two things happen at the same time. Desperation and desire captured me. They both were present. I was desperate, like the poor, the crippled, the blind and lame in this parable. I knew I needed help. Everything in my life was failing. I was lost, and I was tired of running with the sinners. Those who took glory in their shame. 
I was tired of Sunday morning having a hangover. Some people say, man, you gave up so much to come to Christ. Really? What I give up? Friends that will only hang out with you because you buy them a beer? And hangovers? In misery? Is, is that hard to give up? But on the other side, I was desiring Christ. In my desperation, I saw him maybe the very first time as the Savior. I remember saying that. Jesus is a Savior. And I really never knew what it was until I needed saving. It's kind of like that round life preserver thing on the side of a boat. You know, I always saw it on Gilligan's Island. Like, what is that thing on the side of the boat? Oh, when you're drowning, I know exactly what that thing is. It's what you grab to stay afloat. That's why you grab Jesus. Because you're going to drown in sin if you don't grab him. C.S. Lewis in his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, tells of this moment when Jesus became compelling to him. He compares his encounter with a cat chasing a mouse in the corner, and he's the mouse. And he writes, amiable agnostics, that means nice unbelievers, you know, really intelligent people, will talk cheerfully about man's search for God, as if, you know, we're all on a search for God. Really, nobody is. Nobody really is. And he says, to me, as I then was, they might as well have talked about the mouse's search for the cat. He goes, you know why I came to Christ? Because I was like the mouse that was being hunted by the cat. That's how God comes after us. God wants to catch us. People are not really looking for God until they're forced to, until life becomes desperate. He wants to tear us away from our addiction to sin because he's tired of our old flannel shirt that we call the flesh. He wants to give us a new one, made in his likeness. And the only reason why people come to him is because you have no other choice. You're tired of your old way of life. Are you? I mean, honestly, are you? Who wants to change? Who in here sees Jesus as the person they've been looking for for their whole life? I am convinced until he becomes the answer to your loneliness, your desperation, you won't come because you'll always have better things to do. There's always better things to do than to hang with Jesus. Not for Matthew. Jesus became life. And so life after the encounter became everything for him. Matthew got up and followed. And from that time forward, he was to spend all of his time with Jesus. And he liked Jesus so much, he even invited his friends. Do you like Jesus enough that you'll tell your friends about him? That's a good way to tell if you like Jesus. Verse 10 details it. Matthew verse nine, uh, chapter 9, verse 10. And Jesus reclined at the table in the house. Behold. Behold. Like, look. Take a look at this. Many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. According to Luke, Luke says Matthew put on a great, massive party, a big banquet. He had a big party for Jesus. So Matthew invited all his friends, the nasty, low-down, no-good sinners from town, all came. It's an, to me, it's an amazing picture. I, thieves would be there. Whores would be there. 
drunks came, creeps, they all came out of the woodwork to check this out. My question is, why would Jesus go? Why? It even says he reclined. That means he's hanging out with these guys. Why? Seems like he's enjoying himself. You know, when I invite sinners to my house, one of the problems I find, I find sometimes when I hang out with sinners, sometimes they bring alcohol with them. Why would Jesus do that? You know, the answer is really simple. Because God likes people. He likes everybody. Because he made every single one. I can remember, I'll give you a perfect example of this. I went to my, I did my nephew's wedding in California. My nephew, it's a big guy, his name's Mitch. He just had a son, by the way, named Dane. He'll watch this, so shout out to Dane. Dane's already six feet tall. He's a huge baby, three months old, six feet tall. That's how big Mitch is. Mitch is massive. He's 6'5", he's and he's a minor league hockey player. And if you guys know anything about minor league hockey players, they are a tough breed. People go to minor league hockey games not to see who wins. They go to minor league hockey games to see who's going to get in a fight. That's why they go. And he invited a lot of these guys to the wedding. They were at his wedding. And there was one guy in particular, I got to tell you, he's the most interesting guy I think I've met. His name was Ranks. That was his name. He's a great hockey player, Mitch told me. His nose was broken probably five, six times. And uh, one time he caught me, I caught him, and he knew I caught him. And what he did is while people would go up to the dance floor, he would go to the other tables and get the half-drunk drink. And so he saw me one time, felt really nervous about it. He goes, you know what they say, you can't leave an injured soldier behind, I'm just telling you. And I'm like, no problem. And for some reason, he came and sat with me and my family all the time. He loved talking to me because I was, and he'd call me a priest, you know, one of those things. But he liked talking to me all the time. And he really was interested in what I had to say. And I am sure Jesus would like that guy. I'm sure of it. Who doesn't Jesus like? Sometimes people come in church and I think they think, God does not want to have anything to do with him. I remember talking to a guy and said, I understand the gospel. I get it. I know God says if you believe in him, you get to go to heaven, but I don't think he wants me there. Yes, he does. He does. Jesus went to the party because sinners are there. Sinners at least admit they need his mercy. That's what verse 13 is all about. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. They want God's mercy instead of proving to God how righteous they are by their sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is kind of a confusing statement, I think. Because didn't Jesus come to make us righteous? Yeah, he did. Then what does it mean he hasn't come to call the righteous? Isn't that the point? Righteousness is a good thing. In fact, that's the whole reason the Holy Spirit's given to us, so we'll be righteous. But Jesus is talking here of a kind of righteousness. There's two kinds. It's not as specific, but when you read through Scripture, there's two kinds of righteousness. There's one called self-righteousness. He's talking about here in verse 13. And then there's Jesus' righteousness. He talks about in the book of Romans chapter 4 and 5. 
And the object is, gives identity to the type of righteousness. So when I say self-righteousness, it's all about self. When I say Jesus' righteousness, it's all about Jesus. So let's talk about self-righteousness. Self-righteousness has two qualities to it. Number one, it's so serious. Self-righteous people are so, so serious. They're so serious. It's always a competition, being religious. And it's always about them. Look at verse 15, or verse 14. Then the disciples of John came in. So John was baptizing people for repentance. And they come to Jesus, and they said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples, they don't fast. Look what we do. And they're kind of mad at Jesus. Why? Why don't you go to church every Sunday, doggone it? Why don't you wear a tie? Why? There's this, there's this, why are you so serious? Why are you so angry? And it's all about them. Look, we fast. We fast. How many years I've gone to church myself? Sit in the same seat, and I'll tell you one thing. I'll never be caught at one of those parties Matthew kicks. No way. Then you have Jesus' righteousness. There's a lot of joy when you find Jesus. And it's always about him. Look at verse 15. Jesus said to them, can wedding guests mourn? <laughs> can they, I mean, you're at a wedding and everybody's dancing and you sit in the corner. and can, can wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom's with them? The days will come when the bridegroom's taken away from them and then they will fast. He's saying fasting isn't bad, but it's the purpose of why you fast. You fast because you, you want the bridegroom to be with you and his presence to be with you. You don't fast to impress. No one puts on a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and the worst tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put in fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. In other words, we, we who are saved need to, need to be grateful to him. Be grateful to him. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. This will make sense to you. And I, I tell this story a lot because it crystallizes this whole idea of self-righteousness to me in a very vivid example of my life. I have a grandmother that was the most religious person you ever met. Very pious. And um, on Sundays when I went to college, I would go to church with her. But I'd be mad because she felt the earlier you go to church, the better, because Jesus knows you're more serious. I wanted to go to 11 o'clock. She wanted to go to 9 o'clock. Graham, why do we got to go to 9 o'clock? Because the earlier, the better. You show God just how dedicated you are to him. Boy, that made me mad. I'm like, why can't I just go to 11? I need to sleep in. And then, uh, then she'd come over to her house on Christmas. And one Christmas, one Christmas, she decided she really wanted to show how much she loved Jesus. So she decided to fast during Christmas dinner. She told my dad she's going to sit in the other room and just drink water while the rest of us ate. 
We had turkey stuffing, mashed potatoes, sweet rolls, cranberries. My dad said, Ma, I, lo I love the way my dad talked to his mom because she drove him crazy. Ma, you can suit yourself. But as far as I'm concerned, Christmas is a day to rejoice because the Savior has been born, and I'm eating to that. <laughs> so there my grandmother sat, all alone by herself, drinking her water because she wanted everyone to know just how serious and how much she sacrificed for Jesus, which is nothing but self-righteous hogwash. That isn't righteousness, that's self-righteousness. Self-righteousness only leads to somber, boring religion, regulations, customs, traditions. da na 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 there are a lot of people, I hate to say it, that are like that. They want you to know how holy and serious and devoted they are, but no one's really compelled to worship their Jesus. You know, Jesus is the one who really liked people. And so that's what I just read in 16 and 17 is all about. It's about putting new wine in new wineskins. Not the old wineskins, the old wineskins. Get dry and brittle, and over time, when you pour new wine into them and the new wine starts to ferment, the old wineskin cracks and leaks. It can't contain it, but the new wineskins can. What is he talking about? Two things. Some of it's the old Judaistic religion of works. If you don't work, you die. I think it's also talking about us, that God loves to invite new and interesting people and they don't need to meet your rules and expectations. They need to meet the Savior. Give them the Savior. It isn't about yourself and how good you are. It is about Jesus and a new life he offers. You don't get it from being impressed with yourself. You get it because you're desperate. Desperation and desire grab you in the middle. And honestly, you're tired of wearing the old flannel shirt. It no longer works. I brought something. It's my birthday a month ago. My wife got me this. See, she didn't just throw away my old flannel. She got me a nice new one. Oh, you like the colors, Jackie? Aren't they nice colors? I knew you would. It's so soft. I even sprayed a little cologne on it, you know, so it's really nice. This is why Jesus wants you to get rid of the old shirt because he's got a new one for you. Get rid of the old life. It really stinks. And Jesus' new life is worth 